leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. Hey, security peeps. We are back with another edition of Breaking into Cybersecurity Leadership Edition 2.0. I am Renee Small. Excited to be here again with the special guest we had last week. We were able to twist arms to get her back here again this week. So I'm Renee Small, cybersecurity super recruiter, helping awesome people getting uh, cybersecurity talent, get into opportunities and helping leaders hire great talent. My co-host, Chris. That's Chris, the infamous Chris. He doesn't even need a last name anymore. <laughs> and we are excited to be to bring Lydia back, Lydia Payne Johnson, cybersecurity privacy guru. Say hi to everyone, Lydia. Good morning, everyone. So we are excited to bring Lydia back. Last week we had Lydia on and I, I mean, I learned a ton about privacy. Chris said he learned a ton too. The comments were pouring in. People had questions, so many questions that they, you know, at the end, they were like, bring her back. So you're here now, ready to answer all the questions that are coming in. Folks, please, please, please ask your questions. Lydia, where do you want to start off today? So we had some questions from last week that didn't get answered. Should we, do you want to start there or? Sure. Um, now you're going to make her do homework. I know you're going to make me do, I, and I was doing work this morning. I went to last week's questions and I was doing work. I said, okay, Lydia's going to come and say, where are the questions from last week? And I had them up somewhere, but let me see if I can find them real quick. I know someone talked about, joining one of one of the questions that I remember reading was around how you know getting into getting a G JD having more JDs in the privacy arena mm -hmm. and I don't know if well, I'll get back to the question but I think there was a there was something around um a question around like career tracks so when you get the JD or when you go into um um, law programs, is the JD really like, are most privacy leaders um, attorneys? Um, there are a lot of privacy leaders who are attorneys. Um, sometimes you find privacy actually sits in the legal division. Um, it sits in compliance. It has been an operational risk and enterprise risk. Um, so it really, it really depends on the organization. Um, many of the early privacy leaders and privacy officers were also JDs or attorneys. Um, sometimes the um, general counsel wears two hats and is also the chief privacy officer. So um, I know a dilemma or a challenge that uh, current JD students have is they you know, a lot of the, like, let me back up. A lot of the law schools are now starting to add 
um, cybersecurity or technology tracks uh, as part of the curriculum. The challenge that some of the JD graduates have is should they certify, get certified as a certified information privacy professional, CIPP, uh, before they graduate or should they wait until after they graduate? Um, and, and there again, I have to say it really it depends on, you know, what track you want to take in the privacy field. Um, if you have a strong background in security, for example, um, a CISSP might be a better uh, certification for you. You also have to look at the job description. The job description will say whether or not they want someone who is privacy certified. And um, I know the International Association of Privacy Professionals has sliced and diced the different certifications now. So there's a CIPP uh, IT, there's a CIPP um, uh, EU, um, there's a CIPP US. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's even a CIPP um, M, which is uh, if you want to go into privacy program management. Wow. Uh, so there are um, different certifications, but again, it, it really is based on the track you want to take or you think you want to go into, which is why I, you know, as I said last week, um, helpful to talk to someone in the company who is either the, the privacy officer maybe the CISO, but where does privacy sit in your organization? And um, then go and get 30 minutes on their calendar and have that discussion. Um, and the discussion can really be, is there a path? I mean, they, they could very easily bring you into the privacy team and you will get inundated with, with grunt work, okay? Um, if you're looking for a particular track, do you want to become a chief privacy officer? Do you want to become a CISO? Do you want to become, what is it that you want to do? And in some organizations, there really isn't a career track, be perfectly honest. Um, you know, you, you're either in privacy or you're not. You know, even with InfoSec, you're either in InfoSec or you're not. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you need to understand what are the opportunities, but you could also say, if I can get my foot in the door, can I use that as a springboard to go somewhere else at some other point? So, Do, do you think there's a, a conflict of interest um, between privacy and, say, data protection or um, operations? Absolutely not. I think they're all part of the same mix. They all need to work together. Um, data protection is just a broader um, set of requirements for privacy. So the U.S. uses the term privacy. Um, outside the U.S., the term is data protection. We're, we're, I think we're the only country that uses uh, privacy. So um, Canada might have it, but I think it's around personal protection of data. Um, so... No, it, it's, it's a heavier lift when you add in the data protection piece of it. So again, if you're working for a U.S. company, 
that US and the US company does a lot of, um, and it has a global footprint, it is not unusual to have a privacy officer here in the US um, and you have data protection officers in the, you know, the respective countries where the, the, the organization has offices. Sorry. All these busy people we have on here, phones ringing. <laughs> They're looking for, for Lydia. Okay, Jamal Douglas, thank you so much. So first I want to shout some people out. John, Jonathan Harris is here. Terrence is here. BB, good morning. So um, everyone, people, they come back over and over again, and we so appreciate you coming. And we shout out folks because everyone's not always watching. A lot of times they're listening. So Jamal Douglas once says, good morning all. What has been your experience with independent consulting in the cybersecurity field? Is there more desire for external or in-house expertise? Um, and I'll, I'll add privacy into that. So cyber and privacy. So Lydia, is it more an external? Um, you see more people doing consulting in this space or is it more of an in-house expertise in privacy? Um, what you find with consulting is that they'll tend is that companies tend to lean on the KPMGs, the ENYs of the world. It's very unusual for them to bring in an independent consultant in that space. Um, and and probably because there's so many moving pieces. And so easier to bring in a KPMG or a big four team um and you know, assign folks accordingly, as opposed to um, one person who may only have access to one or two resources. Um, plus KPMG, um, and I'm not leaning in KPMG's uh, direction. For, uh, but That's I'm, your former employer, right? No, 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 I was at PwC. Okay. But they you know, a lot of times they already have the relationship with the company and they have the background. They've been doing it for quite some time. Plus they, you know, there's follow on work that they tend to get in terms of forensic um, testing and, um, you know, some of the other, um, the other um, audit work or even incident response is what they'll help a company with. So the, you know, it's hit or miss with independent consulting, but just know that you're competing with KPMG and PwC and EY, um, Grant Thornton in that space. Do you feel that privacy, talking about those companies, tends to be more of a compliance concern for companies than a proactive thing that they do? Yes. <laughs> well, that was a short and sweet. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're bringing in, uh, I'll give you two examples that I am very much aware of. Um, and, and I know of three. One is at PwC, um, AIG needed, they, the regulator was on them like white on rice. And AIG had 63 subsidiary companies around the world. Wow. And they had all kinds of issues with respect to data management. And so um, the regulator essentially stepped in 
and said that they were giving them five years to clean everything up. So um, they called in PwC, they called in Deloitte, they called in uh, ENY. Um, what kind of slowed it down for them was that it was literally a month before the market crash in, in 2008. So um, uh, when I was at CIT, CIT uh, became a bank holding company as part of the financial crisis. They declared bankruptcy. They got out of bankruptcy. They didn't even have a compliance group. Uh, they brought me in as a, a chief privacy officer. Um, but the Federal Reserve, when they became a bank holding company, they were under the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve was way, way, way up their butts um, in terms of cleaning everything up. Um, put a lot, of, put a lot of pressure on them, and then you know, Freddie Mac. Um, the um, they didn't have a program, and then again, their regulator had stepped in and had issued some uh, major findings, and um, that had to be remediated. So, uh, and then there were a bunch of audit findings. I think it was thirty-two major audit findings when I. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and they just they kept piling on. So kept going and going, they kept going, and like, and that's just on the privacy side. I can't even begin to tell you what was happening in informa for information security. But my point you being, talk about that. yeah, that's the type of thing that gets to the board mm -hmm. and has visibility. And so there's the pressure on the CEO, there's the pressure on the CIO, there's the pressure on the compliance officer to what are you doing to fix this problem? Hmm. Um, or there's a data breach. And now all of a sudden you have to get under the hood and see, okay, what was the data breach and why did this happen? So now you're bringing in the, you know, the, the big, a big four to take a look at it and then to figure out where do you have those gaps and what needs to be cleaned up. T talking uh, of data breaches, do you feel that companies accurately track the origins of their privacy data or data in general to be able to really trace back during a breach where it came from, what purpose it was acquired for and why it's being used? Um, no. <laughs> I, I, I think that they don't get that deep. I think that when a breach happens, um, you know, it's, it's kind of all hands on deck for, um, privacy and legal and, um, maybe HR or your communications people, your, um, your regulatory people, uh, not regulatory, but the in-house folks in terms of, okay, we have to figure out what happened here. And um, you, may be ha you may have a timeline. The timeline may be set by a state. It may be set by the regulation itself that you need to try to figure this out. Do you have to notify mm -hmm. um, the individuals? Um, that takes a minute to pull all of that together, but you also have to make sure you, you, you've declared a breach. Mm -hmm. okay. And so the handling of a breach or an incident such as that is more forward-looking 
less backward looking as far as, well, why did we collect the data and for what purpose? It's always, okay, this happened. What are the things that we have to do to comply with whatever the regulations are? Do we have to notify? Um, do we have to continue to do some investigation? Um, what do we have to fix, if anything? And then um, how do we prevent this from happening again? But there's generally not this ongoing, once it's fixed, there isn't that I am aware of an ongoing, well, let's let's figure out why, why did we have this data in the first place? Mm. Terrence says, how about the EU? But I don't know what this is in reference to, Terrence. So I don't know if it had to do with the consulting question because it came in right after the consulting question. So let us know. Um, and then we'll get right back to you on that. Jermond is back. Hey, Jermond. He said, last session, you touched a bit on the regulation of social media. Think change, should there be marketing requirements similar to financial services? Um, there, I think for social media, Jermond, there should be marketing requirements. But, financial, but for financial services, the marketing requirements comes out of the Securities Act. The marketing's requirements come out of, you know, laws that have been on the books now almost 80 years, um, 90 years, really. Um, so with social media, we have really no regulations on the books. And so to try to get those horses back in the barn and corralled in a way that they will, you know, adhere to something. I think the damage has already been done. I don't know that um, it would help to. I think you can put some guardrails up for them around marketing, but it, I don't think you can put anything up as uh, prescriptive and stringent as for financial services. Hmm. Teresa Ramirez wants to know what is your take on the <laughs> privacy risks. <laughs> Do you think it should be banned from the U.S.? Um, I, I think we have to take a reality pill on, on you know, whether it's TikTok or Facebook or, um, you know, they're here. They've, they've been here. They've been so um, uh, integrated into so many things um, and so many devices and so many channels that, um, and there haven't been any real privacy you know, guidelines. So the privacy risk is real. The privacy risk is real. Um, I don't care what it is. Um, and I think that the privacy risk accountability needs to be shared by the users of the, of the platforms. You know? uh yeah, yeah. That's where I want to jump in, because unlike some of the other social media platforms where what the users put in is what typically goes out, TikTok takes that a step further right. to the point where if it lives on an Android application, even when the application itself is not running, it's running location services, tel um, telemetry services, uh, copying and pasting your clipboard, like it's just rampant. Um, so, yeah. 
I mean, I think it's in India. I think in India they they it's banned. It's like yes. not. Yeah. The red flag should have been, you know, look where it's coming out of. It's coming out of China, right? And I mean, you can go all the way back to the early days of privacy when you could not travel, particularly to to Asia, with a a good laptop because they would take it because they, they wanted the technology. So if you were traveling to um, that region of the world, a lot of times a company would give you a dummy laptop so that if they confiscated it, they couldn't get good information. So it's not like this is new news about China. Um, so at, at its, you know, in the early days of TikTok, U.S. as well as other companies had the opportunity to say, hey, guys, we don't want this because we know what you're doing. Um, they're, they're like, uh, I think it's Venezuela. If you um, have a presence in Venezuela and you uh, are import any data into Venezuela, you have a data center there. Venezuela says, you know what? This is our data. Good luck trying to get it out and get it back from us. And we can do what we with it as we want. So you don't send your data to, you don't set up a data center in Venezuela. I think of TikTok the same way. We, it's not like this is, people shouldn't be surprised because we, we kind of knew. <clears throat> and, and I'm not saying it was clear to the users what they were doing. But yeah. well, certainly um, people at a higher pay grade than us in the government um, in our government most certainly knew and could have put the, you know, put the brakes on it much sooner. Speaking of like, you mentioned Venezuela and owning the data. Do you think companies treat data that they've acquired as a toxic asset that as it age, it becomes more um, deadly to them? Like, why own marketing data from 20 years ago if you're not actively using it? Well, companies are not really good at data um, retention and data management policies. Um, yeah, companies are holding on to a lot of data. And it's a laziness factor, I think. And I think it's not really a priority. Um, has there been a a data breach that's made, you know, the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times that's based on, this is data from, from like 1930. What are they still doing with this? Um, you know, so uh, until there's something that spurs companies to take a harder and look and be more proactive around data management, um, so that is having a data retention schedule. You have a data destruction um, schedule and you adhere to it. Um, you know, the, the problem is going to continue to exist. It's toxic from the standpoint as if you have some litigation um, and, you know, you think that you destroyed it and it still exists. A good example is the Sunbeam case with Morgan Stanley. Um where Morgan Stanley was the lead manager on this deal with Sunbeam. Mm -hmm. and Sunbeam, um, for the benefit of, of the um, 
everyone watching, Sunbeam made these um, grills, you know, the, the outdoor grills. And um, it, the company was owned by Ron Perlman, who, had, who was the CEO of, of Revlon. And so um, the deal didn't go well. And Ron Perlman sued Morgan Stanley. So a lot of it had to do with this, the records and some tapes that had some of the background of co- correspondence on the transaction. Morgan Stanley said the tapes have been de- destroyed. And so they presented what evidence they had to the court. And the judge said, this, you have to have more than this. And even the plaintiff said, you have to have more than this. So Morgan Stanley kind of said, no, we don't. You know, according to our schedule, this stuff was destroyed. Uh, to make a long story short, well, maybe about 12 months in, they found some tapes that had the data on it. <laughs> and Good old backups. Morgan Stanley was in New York at the time. And so the, the deal was handled by a group in the Midtown office. Well, they found some tapes down in the lower Manhattan office, which had nothing to do with Midtown at that point. So then 15 months in to the the case, they found some more tapes. Wow. And they were in Brooklyn. Okay. And the judge by now is so pissed off. Um, I think Morgan Stanley got hit with a $6 billion fine, with a B. Okay. Wow. Um, But that's the risk of holding on to data for so long um, and for too long and too many copies of it. So um, the data management um, aspect of, um, of, of risk management is, is very weak in a lot of companies. What do you think would, would, would force companies to change that? I, I think that there has, you know, again, if somebody, um, if somebody, if, if there was a real incident that pointed to the problem, you know. So clearly, fines a six billion dollar fine isn't 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 it? No, life goes on, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that wow. case was very public. It was in the papers, and it was. Uh, very public, but that was just one case. You know, we, we haven't heard about other cases. Um, I, I, Chris, I, I can't tell you. I think I think in the EU they're a little stricter about it, but most certainly a lot of the U.S. companies are not. It's it's not a priority for them. Yeah, when I was helping advise uh, an agency on their data protection policy and using technologies to better control and control who has access and what access they had to data, just the control matrix around that boggled people's minds and set them like they wanted to push that off. Like they don't want to deal with that. No. And where did, and where should it live? Who owns that? Is it in compliance? Is it in legal? Um, you know, it doesn't, it shouldn't be in, um, you know, IT. No. 
because it also involves paper records. It's not just, you know, electronic records. Right. So Ratish says, I'm helping a friend get into the privacy field in LA. She is pursuing her CIPP US. What is a good entry-level position to obtain? What would be your advice on an effective job search and convincing an employer to hire them? <laughs> okay, a good, well, Latrice, it would be helpful to know what your friend's background is to be able to maybe recommend an entry point into the privacy field. Um, because you can find roles that, you know, I'll go down that list again in compliance. You can find roles in the healthcare um, uh, industry. You can find roles in the retail. You can find the roles at, at the social media companies. You can find um, roles in the government um, like the FTC, um, you can be, a, a, do you want to go into policy making? So what are the, you know, what, what is your friend bringing to the table that combined with the CIPPUS that when they sit at that, sit in an interview that they say that here's what I'm bringing to the table. Here's how I can be of value because of this skill, that skill, the other skill in, and with the CIPP US, I mean, does she have it? Does your friend, I'm, I'm not gonna say she, she or he, do they have any experience or exposure to privacy, security, um, compliance? Um, you know, that because you, you have to be able to, your 30 second elevator speech needs to be able to, to explain that package that you're bringing to the table. and why you should hire me over the rest of the field. So and I, I, go ahead, Renee. I want to, I wanted to just add some of the things that you talked about last week, that it's not really entry level, that people tend to come in having different backgrounds. Um, you know, a lot of folks, as we talked about earlier, have a JD, um, have been in an organization or different organizations. So, and Lydia talked, I don't know if you were here last week, Ratish, but Lydia talked about how a lot of these organizations are small. So your privacy department, Lydia was at um, Freddie Mac, for example, you had a team of, and she's the chief privacy officer, and you had a team of like five or six, right? Mm -hmm. It's a small team. So, and, you know, think about Freddie Mac being a fortune, I think it's like 10 company <laughs> like it's a it's all the way at the top mm -hmm. um so trying to um be in these little smaller groups it might be it might worth be worth more to get a foot in the door somewhere else that's what you were talking about last week right lydia yes and uh, as so he adds that okay he adds that she was doing office admin work and customer service at morgan stanley so it's a big change for her she helped manage her customer data at a high level so sounds really entry, entry. It is very entry. And um, she may consider, um, again, depending upon the company she's looking at, and I would say talk to the chief privacy officer at Morgan Stanley, the current chief privacy officer at Morgan Stanley, to see what's available over there. 
but um, she may also want to see if they have a data governance group. If she was a data manager, she might be able to get her foot in the door um, there. Um, these are um, data governance areas are newer. Um, they're more tied to the business. So she's at least bringing in some of that, that knowledge and that exposure and, um, you know, start to um, uh, work her way up from there. But if she's still at Morgan Stanley, uh, I would recommend that she um, research who the, the current chief privacy officer is and see if she can get a 30 minute um, slot on that person's calendar and talk to them about what she's looking to do. I want to add in, Lydia, I think that's a, such a good point. People tend to reach out to me, Chris, you, and a lot of the times the opportunity is within the company that they're in right now. And this is for all types of cybersecurity, well, all types of security roles is gen in general. Yeah. It's so much easier a lot of the times to move around within your current company than to, you know, look for something outside. Because inside people, they know of you, they can look at your performance evaluations, you know, you have more of a shot, they under, they know that you understand the culture of the organization, that you're already successful in another role. So it's a lot easier and simpler to move someone around within, and a person may be, you know, cheaper in terms of compensation and bringing in like an expert from outside. So it's a lot of times, especially in these entry spots, it's very, very, um, you know, Lydia talks about getting a foot in the door anyway, and then moving around. So if you're already inside, think about what the strategy is to move around within. And that could be taking on side volunteer projects while you're in your current role. You could go over to another organization. I know Lydia would be like, if I say, hey, Lydia, I'm over here, but I have some extra time. Can you give me a project to do? She'd probably happily hand over a project <laughs> so that I could start to get a little bit of experience in the space, you know? So um, I just want to kind of reiterate that little piece because I think people tend to always look outside and inside is a lot of the times very, very fertile ground for you to be able to, to move within the company. Yeah, and that's a great point. And I think, un unfortunately, while we're still in lockdown mode, you know, you also wouldn't get the opportunity to um, shadow somebody, you know, um, that, uh, and by that I mean is that, um, let's say that you, you talk to the chief privacy officer at, um, at, at your company and, um, you know, just say, I'd like to see what a typical day is like either, you know, for you or for somebody on your team. And they would allow you to shadow that person so that you would be able to get some sense of, of, you know, what some of the moving pieces are that are associated with the roles. Yeah. So Richie says, excellent points, really appreciate it. So you're welcome. One, one of the things Dan mentioned yesterday, and it, it, it might align with this, is that a lot of the smaller companies don't have room for a full-time data privacy someone. So for those looking to build their experience, they can go to these smaller companies, advise them and build up their experience because you can work more closely with the managers and gain that experience while you're looking to build yourself up. 
The caveat I would add there, though, is that if you're going to go that route, you still have to have some um, uh, experience because remember, you're going to be advising them and you're advising them on things that have to do with regulations. And so if you don't have the requisite background um, and you're just entry level, then it becomes a bit of a risk um, for, for the organization um, because how do, you know, how do they put assurance around what your interpretation is or what you know, you're, you're recommending? Mm, makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Good point. So Jeanette says, what are your thoughts about COVID-19 contact tracing and HIPAA? Um, they are related, but I, I, as I have seen, um, you know, right now I'm at George Washington University and we're doing a lot of um, 11th hour review of vendors that are literally coming out of the woodwork for contact tracing. Um, you know, universities is, uh, are trying to, you know, get the students back in on campus by the end of August. Um, but early on, um, you know, for schools that have um, um, medical uh, or they have hospitals that are associated with them or medical schools, um, when we were looking at Zoom and Google Teams and looking at other um, uh providers at the start of the lockdown period when everything was going remote, um, there was an exception that was issued around HIPAA requirements and some of the COVID-19, um, uh, you know, requirements that, that had, had popped up out of the CDC. As far as contact tracing, um, some of the companies are able to do it by um, barcodes, randomly generated barcodes, which would not necessarily, if you were to reverse engineer it, um, you could not identify the underlying person. Um, I think that that is right now probably the, the most HIPAA compliant you could probably get. Um, and like I said, I think that that, that approach is, um, doesn't put you into any kind of uh, dark waters as it pertains to personal health information. Um, but I think, you know, the other thing I, I believe is that it's going to be tough right now because this is all brand new. And a lot of these companies that are coming to the table with these offering contact tracing, they haven't really been in it either. And so I think it's going to be hit or miss um, initially. And since there was this sort of um, exception that was extended, um, would you be able to to double back and, and, and cite HIPAA violations? if in fact there was an issue down the road. So I think, Jeanette, it's, it's, it's a great question, but I think it's a wait and see right now. So uh, Jamal says, great question, Jeanette. Apologies and thank you for answering my question. 
No apologies needed, Jamal. <laughs> We're just here to answer questions. So Lydia, I'm curious about, last week you talked about the course that you'll be teaching um, at Brooklyn College, right? Well, tell in, us about New York it. Law School. New York Law School, New York mm -hmm. Law School. Tell us about it. What, what are you gonna be teaching? It's basically gonna be information uh, privacy law, one-on-one um, -on -one and uh, uh, New York Law now has a, um, they have a technology um, uh, and innovation track for their, yeah, at the law school, which is really great. And um, it'll be basic, but I think that what I am also going to bake into the syllabus is the operational aspects of, um, uh, of uh, managing privacy and privacy compliance. Nice. Sounds exciting. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I, I think that's always good to to blend in the um, real world operations and management rather than just the theory and the law um, to help the students think about what they would really experience in the real world. Yeah, and I think that the practical application of it um, if you step out of whether it's a law school or it's a cybersecurity um, program, um, either graduate level or undergraduate level, and you have that practical uh, knowledge that you can sit at, you know, an interview table and you can talk to, that helps to give you an edge over the others who just know the law or they know uh, the technology. Do you think organizations are going to have more internship opportunities, especially for like law students that have this track coming out and they, you know, study in this track that they'll have more um, internships focused in this space? Or do have you are you seeing that right now? Um, I know that New York Law School actually started an internship program this summer um, like that. Um, I believe George Washington may be trying to stand one up for not this summer, but next summer. I think you are going to see more of it because I believe that the um, uh, the career counselors, and I was actually on a panel uh, last year with the career counselors from um, uh, law schools, that they are realizing that there is this gap between, you know, textbook law and, um, yeah, okay, you take the bar, you could, you know, you, you get admitted, but then for students that want to get into this space, that they really are at a disadvantage. So yeah. I think you're going to see more um, intern uh, programs and partnerships with law schools. That's really good to hear. And for somebody like Ratish, that if her, if that, you know, his friend is interested in potentially going that route and getting, you know, potentially getting a law degree. Now, Lydia, when you have a JD and a lot of the the attorneys that are in the space have JDs, but would the LLM also have this type of a track? I don't know the I don't know like the intricacies. So is that yeah. something that Yeah, the LLM is usually if you want to teach. Okay. Um, that's when you would get an LLM. Um, I, I think that the, 
it would be helpful if, you know, a lot of the, the schools actually did the internships within their own IT and compliance areas and not looked to outside um, companies to, to, uh, to partner with. That's a really good, that's a great idea. <laughs> like, like that is an area that the help is totally, obviously you, you being in it, the help is needed. Yeah. Um, students are already there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Start mm -hmm. that up, Lydia. <laughs> we did talk about it last year with, uh, with Brian Markham and uh, before he left. And, and then we talked to the, um, the head of the law school, but then it, it, it didn't go anywhere yet. And with yeah. the lockdown, again, it's... It's tough. It is yeah. tough. Yeah, for sure. So we are almost, we're almost at 45 minutes again, Lydia, wow. with all these great wow. questions. And I think um, we have to run. I know Chris has to run. So Chris, you want to wrap it up with Lydia right now? Oh, well, Teresa has a quick question. <laughs> and then... <laughs> One quick question. I have no experience in the field. I have a BA in management information system. Is a help desk job my only option when trying to break into the field? Or what could be another entry entry level job? <laughs> Teresa. Well, Teresa, we can we can dial back to a single entry level job, okay? Uh, <laughs> I I've you know, a lot of organizations are standing up these um data governance and uh, business information um, uh, areas. I would explore that um, because they're new and they're looking for newer people to uh, help them um, as, as they are pulling that all together. Um, it, it's, or data govern, it might be called data governance in, in the organization. Um, Take a look at KPMG. They just uh, started a whole data governance. Um, it's not so much a practice area, but it is a um, it is a it is a standalone group within the the the, the firm. And um, the woman that heads it up, her name is Jody Morton. Uh, Jody used to be at Freddie Jody Morton's over there. Yeah, Jody Morton is the head of the data yeah. management. She's the data governance officer or something for KPMG. But uh, I would explore that um, where you might see um, data governance or business information uh, governance uh, uh, systems. Not systems, uh, but, but areas, departments. Another good area would be a, becoming a business analyst um, because mm -hmm. if, if you're a business analyst, you can look at the systems, look at work with the users, see how, how the users require the systems to work and how the systems work. And then you can have a better understanding as to how to protect the data while still allowing the users to use it how they want to. <laughs> it, the last thing I'll add to that too, is that if you can't get into that area, because some of those tend to be small areas too, a lot of times they have what they call data stewards or data custodians. And they're just folks that they, this is another title that's tacked on to what they're already doing. Um, 
if, if there's an opportunity for you to become a data custodian or a data steward, raise your hand for that. Good point. Okay, Chris, you want to wrap? Um, if you had to summarize everything you said today into one piece of sage advice, what would that be? Oh, uh, <laughs> I think it's not, diff not any different than what I said last week. Identify what it is you want to do. If you want to get into privacy or you want to enhance what your background is in security with privacy, take a minute to understand what all these different aspects are and then pursue that. Uh, take the time to speak to somebody in your organization who is either working in privacy or heading up privacy um, to get a sense of what opportunities may exist um, what the career track is, but really important to be solid on what you're interested in. It's not enough to say, hey, I, I'm, I'm looking to break into privacy. But what is it that you, what do you bring into the table um, that would be a good fit with the privacy organization? Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much again, Lydia. We really, really appreciate your time. And for you coming back with us so quickly, too. I know how you had to rearrange your schedule, so I really, really appreciate it. I know everyone here got their questions answered, so that was fantastic. And we will have to bring you back again another time. I know you're super busy, but we'll make sure to bring you back, fit you in there somehow. And don't be a stranger. So. Okay. Everyone else, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your awesome questions and engagement. And we will see you again on another episode of Breaking into Cybersecurity, the Leadership Edition. Bye, everyone. In the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity, your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors, we're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three or six month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.